Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. In this episode, we are republishing an uh, episode that we did on our OnScript podcast with Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott about uh, food in ancient Israel and her work as an archaeologist. I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, thanks so much to Cynthia for that interview, and thanks to you for listening and for the support that you've given, uh, both financially and, and giving ratings on different platforms and all that, um, but, but mostly just uh, your willingness to engage with the subject matter. Uh, we hope that this podcast is a place where people can get some in-depth discussions on important things about the context, history, geography, archaeology of the Bible. And I think that's all pretty fun stuff, and it's nice to hear from listeners and people that care about um, the land of the Bible and um, that kind of cultural context. And and uh, so, so thanks for engaging, thanks for listening, and uh, we always welcome your feedback or comments. You can email at onscriptpodcast at gmail.com if you want to drop me a note or someone else. Uh, we always like to hear from you. Uh, thanks, and enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to OnScript. I am here today with Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott. She is Associate Dean of the Faculty of Theology and Associate Professor of Hebrew Bible and Archaeology at William Jessup University. Cynthia did her PhD at the University of Sheffield in the UK. She's an experienced field archaeologist in Israel and is currently part of an archaeological excavation team at Tel Halif in Israel. And I'm sure we'll hear a bit about that. She's the editor of the Five Minute Archaeologists in the Southern Levant, which is a user-friendly exploration of basic concepts within archaeology and the techniques and methods used by archaeologists in the field. She's also written Food in Ancient Judah, Domestic Cooking in the Time of the Hebrew Bible. So, Cynthia, thanks for joining OnScript. Thanks for having me. So, have you always had uh, an interest in the study of the past history, archaeology? Yeah, I have. I, um, I've always loved history. In fact, I was never really any good at school as a kid, but I loved history, and I loved reading my Bible. I mean, I grew up in a, a Christian home, and so I loved reading my Bible, but... Um, I was always fascinated more by the Old Testament <laughs> and always... Let's hear it for the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. you know, um, but um, yeah, I just loved it. And when I went to college and I started taking classes on it and I went to Israel for the first time and in college and did a, a dig for a day, it it just... I, archaeology never even really entered my mind as far as something that I'd be interested in. Um, until that trip, I was what nineteen, because there there was something about the archaeology that was history that you could see, that you could touch, uh, a very physical way of holding history in your hands, and that really resonated with me. Hmm. And so, what what uh, what college were you at then? Uh, I was at Simpson College, now Simpson uh, University. Did you in do Reading. a semester abroad, or was it a trip abroad, or what was the? It was a you know historical geography class with yeah. one of my professors for the summer. We did um, Israel and Egypt, and we went to all the historical, religious, and archaeological sites, and we had the dig for a day, and we were at the caves of Moresha which we found nothing except maybe some bone, you know, animal bones, but. Which is why, which is weird. Why I wonder why, how, what about that? Even though we found nothing, 
resonated with me, but something did. Yeah, so. it was there, there was an electric buzz in the air <laughs> that like we might find something. <laughs> right. That's part of it, right? Yeah, the allure yeah, of, maybe. of that. Yeah, it's funny. I did a um, a one day dig that prompted my interest. You know, the Temple Mount sifting yeah, project. Right. So when I was um, in Israel in 2011, that was the first time I'd done any digging of any kind, and it was really sifting mm-hmm, the, right. the stuff from the Temple Mount. Yeah. But that was really fun. Yeah. Sifting can be really tedious in some ways, but then when you are finding things and you think, oh, you wouldn't have found that if you hadn't sifted that. Right. More than likely. Yeah. I mean, uh, we were finding bits of, uh, you know, columns from the Temple Mount because they were slightly rounded and you knew they were part of a column of some kind and um, animal uh, teeth. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty cool to find a sheep tooth up there and yeah. know that this is a sheep tooth from the Temple Mount. You yeah. Know, it's like, so, yeah, it was uh, it was exciting and um, very formative. In fact, my son was, he was one at the time and he was sifting with us. So oh, he's, really? he started quite early. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, he that's tried to cool. Sift. <laughs> he tried. Yeah. So, you, so you've always had this kind of Bible and archaeology interest. Or, I mean. Yeah. It, in college, the archaeology part came into it. Um yeah, and I, I just kept pursuing it. I had never, it never entered my mind to continue the academic route. You know, I just was like, wow, I really like this, and I want to keep studying it. And I guess if I want to keep studying it, I should keep, you know, working on degrees. And what do I want to do with it? And I thought, oh well, I'll teach, and um, didn't realize that that's more difficult than <laughs> getting into that point is much more difficult. But I thought, okay, if I want to do this, then I'll just keep going that direction. And, and where are some of the places that you've dug? Yeah, I've dug at quite a few, a few places now. Um, so I started out when I was working on my master's, I was um, working at Tel Rehov, um, which was directed by Ami Mazar of Hebrew University. Yeah, so really fantastic dig. Um, and really kind of at the time, the at the center of that whole high-low chronology debate right. between okay. Ami and Israel Finkelstein. Okay, could you give it like a one-minute um, explanation of that? Because most people sure. won't know that. Sure, yeah. So the, and you know, that's, that's going to be hard to do. Um, so... Um, <laughs> people debate stuff. They debate stuff endlessly. <laughs> Um, but the idea being, um, and it was kind of also at the this heart of the so-called minimalist and maximalist debate. What really, you know, what is the is the is the Hebrew Bible historically reliable? And and that brought up these questions about, okay, are is the dating that we've given to certain um, strata is that right or wrong and is it earlier or later or is it just right because it was really dependent upon the biblical text and so this was at a time when a lot of archaeologists were saying no just don't even bother with the biblical text because it it was almost a reaction against people digging with the bible in one hand and the trowel in the other and making the archaeological data fit the biblical narrative but then you get into the whole biblical studies historical critical methods and looking at the historical reliability of the text. And so that brought archaeologists wondering, okay, we really have this, are these dates right? And so Israel Finkelstein would argue that, no, they're, they're not right. They're off by what, like they're, 80 years yeah, or something? Yeah, they're off, mm-hmm. which um, 
kind of put then is like a snowball effect. Okay, well, what does that mean for what the reigns of David and Solomon actually looked like? And of course, some scholars would then say, well, were there really reigns of these people? And where's the extra historical anchors for those things outside of the biblical text? So it really just kind of reached out into so many different areas and uh, Rehov was being excavated. Um, and I, if I recall correctly, it wasn't excavated um, before Ami started digging there. And um, really clear, like ninth century stratigraphy um, and ninth century layers, um, and which kind of ended up being in the heart of this historical reliability chronology debate. Got it. Yeah. yeah. And, that's and probably not a very good explanation. No, no, that's good. And so has it, has that been resolved or what? Oh, where, no. no. But I they've mean, just it, kind of... It's just a detente. Well, I think what was great about Ami is that Ami, Ami could see, you know, the, the good, you know, valuable parts of all the different arguments and and he even modified his chronology a bit based on it um and so um i think there's been kind of like a a, a truce <laughs> but nothing of course has been yeah decided all, and yeah because but there'd be not, not much to argue about what stuff if they you took dig up away. doesn't have dates on it and and then getting them, some yeah. sort of absolute anchor to to hang other events right. on or other unless you um, were at depending on what time period you're in a coin or a scarab or an inscription of some sort but those absolute dating um artifacts you know are are, are uncommon yeah and and then so you went from tell rehove what was your next site you right so um when at? i went to rehove we um oh, where is that by the way so it is in the um, the Jordan Valley. Uh, it's not far from Beit Shan. Okay, yeah. so like uh, south of the Sea Galley, right? Uh, south by, of the Sea Galley, about, like about half an hour. Yes, yeah, so yeah, at most okay. a half hour right. drive. Um, not, yeah, right in the heart of that that whole Beit Shan agricultural area. Um, so when I went to um, Rehov, we started um, digging every other year after that, and so Ami's cousin, Elot Mazar, was um, going to be digging um, a site called Akziv, and it was just going to be a one summer thing because she had excavated that at Akziv when she was um, earlier, and she, they, on the very last day, as is like the Murphy's Law of Archaeology, you always find the best things on the last day, <laughs> and they found this tomb, the small tomb that hadn't been um, looted. Huh. And so wow. in order to stop it from being, they, they couldn't do anything with it in the last day or so that they had. So they had to keep it quiet. So they had to keep it quiet and they covered it back up and they swore they'd come back the next year. Eight years later, <laughs> they came back. I think it was eight years. And she asked Ami if she could borrow some of his people and I was one of those people, so I got oh, wow. to go. So you were there when like, they opened mm -hmm, the tomb again, mm -hmm. and then yeah. everything was sitting the reg in there? I was reg the registrar for the tomb. And, um, wow, which means you're marking down everything that's yeah, found. Yeah, everything. So I was in charge of all the stuff coming out, and we ended up having... So Iron that, Age tomb, or what? Yeah, Iron yeah. Age Phoenician tomb um, that hadn't been looted. A small tomb. You could fit about three people in there um, mm -hmm. and just... Comfortably? 
No. <laughs> Very uncomfortably. We had uh, to take our shoes off, which you never dig without shoes. So this wasn't like a regular dig where you're using big tools. This was what we call a dental tool dig where you get the dental tools out in the soft, you know, fine brushes. And, um, and we were right on the Mediterranean. It was beautiful. Um, it was also the summer after 9-11. So no, there were hardly any excavations going on. Um, but it, it really spoiled you for doing any kind of tell archaeology. <laughs> but um, so from there, that was just the one summer. I went back to Rehove, was there for a while. And then um, after when I moved to England for my PhD, um, my supervisor took students to Tel Asafi, which is biblical Gath, and um, asked me to take over teaching that class for her. So um, I started taking the Sheffield students over to Gaff. Uh, and, and that's directed by Aaron Mayer of Bari Lawn University, another fantastic dig. Um, and then... So you've um, worked with some really uh, great people then. Yeah. And then after my dissertation came out, one of the sites I looked at was Tel Halif, which is now run by Oded Borowski of Emory University, and they were going to restart the excavations, and he asked me if I'd like to be part of that team, and so did that. But then this last summer, I was at um, Abel Beit Maka up north, yeah, with um, Nava Panitz-Cohen and Bob Mullins and Nava Nama Yoham Mak, and um, yeah, it was great. Wow. And and so... Which, who I dug with at Rehob. They were on okay. my Rehob team, so it was like I was... Okay. Digging with really old, old friends. Great. And does great. it still have the same thrill to it, or does it feel like work when you go over there? I mean, no, I mean, it, it is work, obviously, but mm-hmm. it's it's still it's work. Exciting. Yeah, I mean, I don't like getting up at four in the morning, <laughs> but who does? Um, it is, but at the same time, you don't know what um, what you're going to find. You know, there's no, and I tell my students that because I take students and teach them how to dig and how archaeology helps us understand, hopefully, you know, ancient Israel and hopefully the biblical text better. And just like you don't know what's under there. And, and that's exactly what happened this summer. One of my areas was um, a dirt swimming pool. It was nothing. You know, maybe some broken pieces of pottery, but no features, no significant, you know, artifacts, anything. And then my area right next to it had a beautiful... Um, like a granary and three remains, remains of three ovens and mm. just wonderful. Which set. is right up your alley. So, it is, I know. So you're, um, <laughs> you're really interested in ordinary life in ancient Israel. Yeah, daily so, life, yeah. Daily life mm-hmm. in ancient Israel. Um, so for a lot of people, I guess there's always this tension with archaeological funding and things like that where right. having a big find is mm-hmm. gives you a nice media splash and it does and that kind of gives attention you more money it, yeah. to do more digging but uh-huh. that's not really what you're what archaeologists are interested in right well i think i mean you want the big stuff too but yeah i mean if if you ran across i don't know name an any, archive yeah archive <laughs> or any spectacular sure you know, artifact, you know, people always ask, oh, the Ark of the Covenant. Like, well, no, <laughs> we don't have that. But, um, I mean, you wouldn't say no to that, but at this, I guess it depends on what your research agenda is. Um, and on any dig, there's all sorts of things that are being uncovered and bringing up new questions and hopefully adding to the answers of some other questions. So even at a site that's a formal a city that's got formal fortifications, like a, a city wall around it, 
um, you may be trying to find the city gate or maybe as, as where I was in Abel, we, I was in this, the area A that has the big um, cultic complex. Um, but at that cultic complex, you know, my area had this agricultural you know, stuff, uh, features, which is really quite interesting. So yeah, you take what you can get, but at the same time you hope to, it will help with your own research too. So when you're looking at, um, daily life in ancient Israel, what, what are some of the things that you're interested in? What gets you excited when mm. you're, um, I particularly like digging, um, houses. So at Halif, one of the things that drew me to it is that, uh, we were doing household archaeology where we were um, uncovering um, a row of 8th century pillared houses. Mm, so which king was that time so of? So 8th century would be Hezekiah. This is, so Halif was one of the 46 towns destroyed by King Sennacherib of the Neo-Syrian Empire in 701. So that's roughly the time of King Hezekiah of Judah and Isaiah the prophet and um, so we're uncovering these rows of houses and not just the house, but, you know, the artifacts and, and doing what we call a spatial analysis, which is trying to understand, okay, because a lot of times on digs you say, oh, I found eight cooking pots and maybe three storage jars. So they're really published and categorized by type. Uh, whereas in a spatial analysis, you're really concerned about the location of the find spot of the artifacts and and not just their find spot but their find spot in relation to the building to the features of the building and to yeah, other artifacts other houses and other houses too right yeah, yeah and other houses too so if you're in a house where you say okay i found in this one space there's an oven and there's a cooking pot next to the oven and there's some carbonized grains and you're, they're all right next to each other. You can say, all right, well, clearly this area was used. The activity which helped, that was conducted in this area was, was food preparation. But then you could say, but also not only was that stuff there, but not far from that against a wall. And this was happened at my house at Halif. There's a nice row of loom weights where the loom would have once been, where they were weaving, and was right next to the food preparation area. So it's not just Don't saying... Don't spill on the yeah, stuff we're weaving. Right. <laughs> so it's not just the types and, and, but, and where, but the where and where they're related to each other and their, their potential activity areas that that could um, reflect. Yeah, so that was interesting in, in a, a paper of yours I read, mm. which is that... The way we think about rooms in a house, we, we kind of have to put some of that aside when we think right. about an ancient Israelite house. So what are some of the assumptions that we might bring to a house that we need to get mm. rid of? I think when we think of our own homes today, we think about, and of course it depends on what kind of home you have, but it's not uncommon for people to have a dining room or a office. Yeah, or more limited use Places. Right, a room that might have a singular function. Maybe you have a man cave, <laughs> or, you know. I don't know. But if we, if so, we're used to thinking of of space in like singularity terms. Whereas I think in most ancient societies, whether it's Israel or not, you're 
your domestic space would have been very much more utilitarian, where you would have been using it for a variety of activities, not just, oh, hey, we're only going to do this and this. We have limited space, but no, you can't do this in there because we only use this room for that. And then are they rolling out mats and sleeping in that room at the end of the day? Right. Well, we think that the house has had um, two stories. Uh, and of course, when we excavate the houses, we only have what remains of the first floor. We don't get the second floor unless it's collapsed onto the first floor. Um, so what we think is that there were two floors and that the bottom floor um, would have been, because I think when we think of houses, we tend to think of today, again, kind of going into those assumptions, and I'll circle back to that question, um, is is that it, it's just where we we live and sleep and we go out to work elsewhere. Whereas in most, even traditional societies today, but in ancient traditional societies, you would, your home was your workplace. You didn't really go out to, not many people at least, especially in earlier days, wouldn't have gone out to a job. So when we think about your household space and how it was used, um, it's, thought that maybe the first floor functioned as a lot of like where your daily activities would take place and also it depend on the season so if you're if it's israel is very much like california where we are today and where i'm from um you know there was most houses it seems had some sort of what a lot of scholars call courtyard, but actually more accurately like a forecourt so an open workspace in the front of the house which was often shared with maybe other houses right around you, which would have probably also been people you were related to. Um, and so your bottom level of your house, whether it's inside or outside, would have been used for you know, daily activities. And it's thought that maybe the second floor would have been used for... Um, Basketball. S- sleeping quarters oh. and stuff. And, um and maybe some other light household chores, mm-hmm. you know, but then the flat roof of the house too would have also yeah. been used. So everything was used. Yeah, everything's multi-use. And mm-hmm. Yeah, quite small too. I mean, they're not yeah, very... Yeah, they're, they're not very they, big. On average, aren't, aren't big homes. Right. And if you think about how many people could yeah. have lived in those homes, that would have... Yeah. Not a lot of privacy and <laughs> personal space. So, Cynthia, are you ready for a speed round? I think so. Okay. So the idea is just... Um, I'll give you like, uh, you know, five seconds, five to 10 seconds to answer just off the cuff. No deep thought about them. Okay. Um, what is your, who is your favorite archaeologist? My favorite archaeologist. Oh, that's a really good question. But there's a number of people I would probably offend. (laughs) Um, Well, um, you know, I'm going to have to say the dick director of my first excavation uh, would be Ami Mazar. Uh, And he, so that was the Tel Rehov excavation that um, I was a master's student on and that I was trained at. And Ami uh, is really well known and well respected in the archaeological community as just a, a very just nice person and a very good archaeologist, very level-headed, very able to see, you know, all sides of the issues. So I would, I'd have to say he's my favorite. And do you have any other scholarly heroes? So not necessarily only archaeology, but perhaps broader biblical studies or beyond? 
Yeah, I, um, within biblical studies and archaeology, someone who really had a great impact on my uh, education and um, just research areas would be Carol Myers. And um, she's still, you know, her work today is still, you know, fantastic and actually have the wonderful opportunity to be working with her and another colleague on a project. So that's kind of surreal. You oh, know, wow. Kind of, that's good. Yeah. Uh, are, are you, so that's are you good. able to say what that project is? Yeah, ac- uh, absolutely. Um, so Carol and myself and my colleague, Jan Ling Fu, are co-editing the TNT Clark Handbook of Food in the Hebrew Bible in Ancient Israel. Oh, fantastic. And I, yeah, I want to come back to Carol Myers um, to talk about gender and archaeology later. So let's let's put a pin in that one. Um, the most significant archaeological find for biblical studies in the in the last ten years. The last ten years. Hmm. Well, I would say the Dead Sea Scrolls, but that was more than yeah. <laughs> ten years ago. <laughs> um, the most important. Geez, that's a really good question. Um, I can't say that there's been one thing that has stuck out as super important. I mean, important on the level of the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Tel Dan uh, inscription. Um, I know, geez, that's a really good question. Uh, It's lightning round. I'm supposed to be quick about this and I can't be quick about it. Again, back to Rehov, the the apiaries that were found in 2005 and 2007, the okay. couple hundred apiaries that were found from the uh-huh. leave ninth. So this is, yeah, I think it was, and what's an apiary? Apiary is a beehive. Okay, and why yeah. is that? Why is that so significant? Because up until then, um, there was no archaeological evidence of. Uh, at least industrial-sized beekeeping. And so when people read about Israel being a land of milk and honey, a lot of scholars, because of this lack of evidence of beekeeping, thought that the the honey that's mentioned in that idiom was actually more of a syrup made from pressed fruit, like uh, dates and figs. And so it was during that excavation, though, that uh, the apiaries were found, and um, you know, thus proving, yes, there was in beekeeping in ancient Israel. Okay. If you could plunge your shovel and trowel into one unexcavated tell, which would it be? Jeez, I don't know. I, I can't think. I mean, so many sites have been excavated. Um, I are, are there a lot that, like, you know, people look at and are like, you know, we'd love to get funding to excavate there, but we just can't? Yeah, you know, and it, there's not a lot to my knowledge, and, and I'm not very knowledgeable on, on that as far as, you know, what tells small, uh, especially ones that have, haven't been excavated. Um, but the Tel Abel Beit Ma'aka excavation uh, way up north in northern Israel um, that hadn't been excavated until um, I think there was a survey, but it hadn't been, you know, part of an excavation project until somewhat recently, like eight years ago. The excavations started there under um, Nava Panitz Cohen and uh, Nama 
Mock from Hebrew University and Bob Mullins from Azusa Pacific University. Okay. And you're digging there, right? I did, yeah. You I, did dig yeah, there. Yeah, I, okay. I was there this last summer, and hopefully I'll be there again this summer. And then where are you originally from? Me, I'm from Southern California originally, and then I moved up to Northern California when I was in high school, so I'm just a California gal. So um, in, in what town in Northern California? Uh, I'm in Auburn. Okay, so mm-hmm. do you have a favorite hometown restaurant? I do. It's called Joe Caribe's. Okay, and what do they serve there that we all need to go eat? It's a wonderful place. It's a, um, it's this really interesting fusion of Indian, uh, Caribbean, uh, Tex-Mex, Asian. It's just this real eclectic place. And my favorite thing to get there is their chicken curry burrito. Okay. I've never heard all of those things brought together. So it it sounds very interesting. It it is really interesting. When my wife and I were on, uh, we did a a month-long road trip, and we stopped in Northern California in a little town, and we, our our approach was to go to churches or anyone we saw and ask if we could put our tent up in the the kind of churchyard or something. And uh, I remember we stopped at a, a place that was called Willow Creek. And it was like this little church, probably of about 50 people or less. And, um, and we had, uh, we had caught what we harvested mussels from the ocean and thought it was going to be really cool to cook our own mussels. And they tasted awful. Um, anyway, that's my, when you talked about food in Northern California, uh, I've got a bad taste in my mouth, so I need to go back and and it's my it's my own doing, uh, but need to try that. Okay, would you choose beer, wine, mead, port, or sherry? Wine. Okay. Yeah, White that was or a red? quick one. Red. Okay. So when people hear that you study food in the Bible, do they a try to send you Ezekiel bread recipes? B Try to convince you of the nutritional benefits of the Daniel diet. C, try to convince you that the alcohol per unit in wine was vastly different than it is today when it, in the Bible. D, all of the above, or E, other. D, all of the above. Okay, you've gotten all those. Yeah, I have. Yeah, and, and do you subscribe to the, the, the benef- nutritional benefits of the Daniel diet? Well, I mean, vegetarian diet is usually a pretty good diet. <laughs> no, but I mean like the, 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 the kind where they're like, you know, we got to really be biblical about it. I don't know how you would do that. Yeah, but. I, don't, I don't know. When, when people try to commercialize biblical stuff, it just, it never goes well. <laughs> so, you know, the whole Daniel diet or the Jesus diet or, you know, it's just... I, I re- that stuff really puts me off. Yeah, but you're never going to get wealthy with that mindset. You I know. You, I think you need to. I, know. <laughs> I think I think you need a wealth mindset. Um, and, and and maybe this is going to be the spur to get you out of your yeah, current mindset maybe. toward a toward a wealth mindset. Yeah, maybe I should do a. Um you know, what would the ancient Israelites cook cookbook? Yeah, it has to have the word secret in the title. The secret oh, Israelite you're right. cookbook. The secret Israelite cookbook. Yep. There you go. On sale now. Pre-order. <laughs> okay. 
I mean, you could you could create a cover and have it on Amazon tonight, and then get, get pre-orders, and then write the thing based on how many pre-orders you get. Okay, you know, what's man, one idea, idea? What's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? One idea in biblical studies that I think needs to die. Uh, improper biblical studies, or like take it where you want. Okay, uh, within like actual biblical studies, it needs to die. Um, it kind of already has died, and I'm kind of glad. Hopefully, I'm, it is dead, or and, and not necessarily dead, but um, it, you know, it, hopefully, it's run its course. Is that is the so-called minimalist maximalist debate that you saw in the '90s and early 2000s, and um. Yeah, it just, it, it's, I understand the conversation. I understand you know, it's an important conversation to have, but the the lengths that it went to as far as the name calling and the, and the category and putting, lumping people into different categories was, um, oh, it was just so childish to me. Yeah. And, yeah. Ha- have things kind of landed in the middle or is it just that's not the debate right now? You know, probably a little of both. Um, I don't think it's a, a huge conversation piece within these fields right now, uh, which I'm I'm glad because I mean both sides had some really valuable points. Um, you know, and like most things, it's it's not an either or. It doesn't have to be, you know, extremes on either end or an either or. It could be both and, and maybe there's you know, a third or fourth or fifth option. Okay. What's one? Oh no, I just asked that. Uh, what's the, <laughs> any other ideas? Okay. The most significant book in biblical studies or ancient Israelite history, archeology span in the last 50 years. Hmm. The most significant. Well, see, you could still really easily offend people. <laughs> Everyone thinks that their stuff is really significant. Um, well, let me look at my bookshelf behind me. Uh, She's reaching could, for her I, book. <laughs> I could be, I was going to say, I could be really um, selfish and say, oh, my own work. Uh, but no, that wouldn't be the case. Um, you know, I, I'd probably, for me personally, I um, and maybe not just, in the scholarly community, but yes, in the scholarly community, but probably more for me personally would, would have been discovering Eve. Um, you know, and that was in the eighties. Um, the Carol Myers was in the eighties. Yeah. I have to ch- check the original publication or oh, late nineties or something like that. Okay. Um, it yeah. It fits within just, the time frame. Yeah. Just because, um, you know, I was a master's student and I loved archeology. span I loved, biblical studies and I loved gender studies, but I hadn't really um, investigated too much at that point to see how all three of them could intersect in a way, because I was always really interested in, in the daily life stuff too. So how could those four things work together as as a research field? And, um, and so when my advisor at the time, uh, David Baker suggested I read Discovering Eve. Um, that was very eye-opening for me because because that's exactly what she does is she 
does biblical studies, Hebrew Bible, archaeology, women, daily life, and it all of those things mixed up together showed me that, yes, you can do all of these things together. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Right. All right, we're going to get to that in a moment, um, but I want okay. to... Do you have Christmas crackers in, in the States I, I say it as if we, like I'm not American as well, um, but I've just <laughs> been living. Mean, I've been yeah. living in the UK and in Europe for almost ten years, so I, I just forget what's what's around. Were those things where they pop? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I did my PhD studies in England, so oh, yeah, I know course. exactly what yeah, you, you mean. You know them, um, um, but so, you you do see them now. Maybe not as. Um, I mean, I was in Safeway last weekend and I saw them uh-huh. grocery store. Made their way over. Um, yeah, and you can, the world market, I think, has had them, Cost Plus World Market has had them for quite some time, but you're starting to see them in less specialty type places. Okay, like so that Safeway, leads me the into the, or, yeah, like, the... So, they're, they're here. So that leads me into a joke that I got out of my recent, uh, recent Christmas cracker that I, I popped at a work party. So... Why should you never invite a team of footballers for Christmas? Now, footballers, soccer players. Right. For our listeners. Why? Why? Because they are always dribbling. <laughs> Thanks for laughing. All right. You're what welcome. seven letter word has hundreds of letters in it? A seven letter word has hundreds of letters in it? Mm hmm. I don't know. A letter box, a post box. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, post box. <laughs> yeah, mailbox. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, that's also seven letters. And let's let's transition to talk about gender and, and archaeology. Um I know we're we're running short on time, but I, I wanna just touch on that because you've mentioned Carol Meyer's work and it seems to intersect with your um some of the work that you've done on household archaeology and uh, I don't know. Have you seen the? There's a recent book called "Invisible Women" by Caroline Criado Perez. I have not. Okay. Um, in the intro, she wrote something that that caught my attention because I knew I was going to be talking to you. And she recounts a story from 1966 at the University of Chicago. There was a symposium on primitive hunter-gatherer societies, and this this uh, meeting was called "Man the Hunter." Mm-hmm. And uh, I've heard so of it. Yeah, you've heard about this. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've heard about the man, the hunter. But okay. Yeah. So there's 75 anthropologists uh, from around the world, and they're debating the centrality of um, of hunting to human evolution and development. And then the consensus out of this, and she quotes, "The biology, psychology, and customs that separate us from the apes—all these we owe to the hunters of time past." Um, and then that was kind of the one of the published results. And then she, she talks about a, a 1975 essay uh, by Sally Slocum called Woman the Gatherer. And then she challenged the primacy of man, the hunter. And she said, anthropologists, quote, search for examples of the behavior of males and assume that this is sufficient for explanation. And then she asked a simple question, what were females doing while the males were out hunting? And then she goes on to talk about what women were doing and then how that changes our thinking about evolutionary biology and so on. Um, and I, I bring that up to just highlight the, the, the ways that a male bias factored in anthropology. What are some of the ways that it factors in archaeology? 
Yeah, um, and that's been talked about by a number of female scholars and archaeologists, so I'll just pick up from what they've said is, and would highlight that too, is that you know historically we have focused on, through in archaeology and within biblical studies, we focused on monumental places, people, events, or um, or what others have said, like places of prestige. Uh, and, and that could be, you know, the palaces, the temples, the city walls, the battlefields, the priests, the kings, the commanders of the armies, you know, the soldiers, all of those things that are big monumental people, places, and events that very rarely reflect um, not only what women were doing, but oftentimes just your average person, your average man, woman, or child, not even just the women, um, because those are places of prestige where your average person um, is rarely going to be interacting in that uh, context unless like they are a soldier as part of a battle or something. Um, so our, our very interests historically in these places of prestige and these monumental places um, ref- has reflected a very um, male-centered, and not just male-centered, but elite male-centered, um, elite urban male-centered uh, focus of our of our scholarship. So what gender archaeology has done and household archaeology as well and has has shifted that focus from the monumental to the mundane you know to uh, the places and the people in the daily activities you know that the activities that occur on a daily basis by your average men women and children um, which may not seem as glamorous or as sexy or as fun to study, but um, if we truly want to understand ancient Israel and ancient Judah better, we need to shift our focus from the monumental to the mundane. And the mundane, the stage of where daily life occurred would be the home. And the mundane can be pretty interesting though. So what are what are some of the so. what are some of the ways that looking at the mundane has begun to reshape how we understand ancient Israel. Right. So even uh, looking at daily food preparation practices uh, and what that would have looked like, um, and of course that means using archaeology, that means using uh, textual material, including biblical texts and other ancient Near Eastern texts, includes iconography ethno-archaeology, you know, all of these things at our disposal that we want to try to use to help us understand uh, ancient Israel better. And looking at food preparation uh, practices uh, has really opened our eyes to um, the role of women and the um, control and authority and power, especially like a matriarch of a household would have had over your food preparation, uh, deciding 
what you know what of the the harvest is going to be stored what of the harvest is going to be um, distributed as far as uh, trade or or maybe um, what's going to be prepared into what products what's going to be made into a meal how much of that's going to be used who gets to eat who gets how much do they get to eat when do they get to eat I mean that's a lot of power (laughs) whoever is in control of the food and it seems like from all of these different types of sources from a variety of different research by different people it seems like uh, women in particular the matriarch of the household uh, was in charge of that so when we talk about women not having any um, you know power uh, within her world I think we are looking at it of course from our 21st century perspective on what consists of power as opposed to looking at trying to put ourselves in their cultural context and what that could have looked like for them of course that's going to look it could be very different than ours Um, but at the same time I think there is there are clues to where we have been you know, ignoring these very valuable people within um, a household that would have had um, strong uh, implications to how ancient Israel, Israelite and Judite households functioned. Yeah, and I can imagine that each term that you use in a discussion about food preparation or household needs defining or redefining because of the assumptions that we bring to those things. Because if when I think of food preparation, I might think of grocery store to table, but that's missing 90% of the process. Um, and and when we talk about household, you know, that's, I might think of a, a family that's on its own in a house, uh, but that's not what it was. And and so all of these places and processes need redefining. And as you do that, and, and your work is so helpful in that, and people at Carol Myers, uh, it it really just changes your perception of the power and role of women and their relationship, their kind of working relationship with men. Yeah, right. And that, you know, and, and it's interesting because um, one of the classes, and I'll connect this together, I promise. One of the classes I teach here at Jessup and just finished teaching this semester is a women in scripture course. And, um, and it, it's interesting these conversations that are these um, students want to have is you know okay because it's not only women in scripture both you know Hebrew Bible Deuterocanonical New Testament but then also at the end of the semester and all through the semester really talking because Jessup is a you know is a is a uh, is a Protestant school um, looking at okay well the so what question you know so what does that mean for us today. Uh, and what does that mean for you know women in the church and leadership in the church and all this stuff and and one of the questions that you know that the think discussion topics that kept coming up is okay well what what is women's roles and and people always using the biblical text to say well a biblical worldview of gender roles is that the man you know is is the provider and he goes and does all the work and the woman stays home and takes care of the children. And one, when we take, you know, real research of the biblical world into consideration, you have to say, well, your 
what you are saying is a biblical view, worldview of, of let's say, gender roles it is wrong um, because your average ancient Israelite man, woman, and child, everyone worked at home. <laughs> Nobody left to go, you know, it wasn't like a normal thing for people to leave and have a job. Everyone in the household was imperative for the survival of the household, regardless of your age, regardless of your sex, regardless of anything. Uh, Every member was imperative and every member uh, participated in the survival. and, And generally that participation happened within the dwelling and the surrounding farmland. Yeah, and also I would imagine too, that's it's really helpful to, to think through this. Um, and I, I would imagine as well, it changes when you think about the technological skills that women had as well, that food preparation, is, it just requires a, a, high, a high level of skill in quite a number of areas. Um, and we're just talking about food. Right, <laughs> and, and think about it too. If men go off to war, you know, then daily life doesn't stop. The fields still need to be harvested or planted. You still need to make food. You still need to get water. You still need to make your clothes. Nothing gets put on pause, and so it was left to. The people who were left in the household, which would have been primarily the children, uh, maybe the so-called elderly, <laughs> and and the women, the women of the household. So, if, if there was a war and they were and the able-bodied men of the family were household were gone, then everything was put on her shoulders. Yeah, and you think about how even in the modern context, war reshaped gender. The, the way that women were involved in the workforce, uh, at least in the States and in Britain. Um, and if war was not that uncommon, then women are always going to have to know how to cover for their the, the men in their families. Yeah, that's fascinating. So um, your, your course on women and gender, did you have like a main textbook for that? I'm just curious. Yeah, um, it's the second time I've taught it, um, so I'm still looking for um, a really good New Testament book, but um, I've used um, Bellis's Helpmates, Harlots, and Heroes for women in the Hebrew Bible, uh, and then, of course, Carol Newsom's um, commentary uh, on women in Scripture, um, and then the New Testament one this year, I used uh, Lynn Coick's book, uh, but that was more on, ended up being more on like the New Testament world, which is you know very fascinating. Um, but I am looking for something that's kind of like the Bellis book, but uh, for for New Testament. So if any of your listeners have any yeah. ideas, <laughs> <laughs> well, my uh, my. Colleague and and boss Lucy Pepe had just wrote a book on women in scripture with IVP. And that's a oh, that's a really good okay. one. That just yeah, came out this autumn. Yeah. Um, so, what are some of the ways that your study of material culture impacts your faith? Yeah, um, you know, for me as as somebody who who loves history and being able to excavate that history. It's history that I can I can see and I can touch and that 
you know, these, for, for me, the, it's the, the story behind the artifacts, right? I love the artifacts. I love the material culture. I love the architecture, the features. I love it all. But what gets me is whenever I think about the stories behind them and I think about, okay, yeah, you've got these biblical narratives and of course you have that discussion with people on on using archaeology in the bible and all that stuff but um regardless of you know how you feel about that when you're excavating it you can't help but think about oh yeah i remember this narrative from the hebrew bible or this narrative from the new testament and and having archaeology help us understand the biblical world better, which then, of course, is going to help us understand the Bible better. And if you come from a, a faith background, or if you're on a faith journey, of course, that can't help but to impact um, your own faith. Uh, and of course, it's going to be different for different people. But for me, being part of that um, is truly a, a privilege and an honor. And I, I think about, okay, if I'm, under, if I'm helping understand the biblical world better, maybe this is going to help somebody else understand the Bible and its world better. And, and using everything at our disposal can help, only help us understand the biblical text better, which if we allow the text to speak for itself allow archaeology to speak for itself and see if they help each other at all then that's fantastic and and how then and then what do i do with that with the so what question you know you always have to ask that so what question um you know well at least for for those of us that that like those kind of questions <laughs> but you know that so what question what does that do for for me and my faith and um, you know, I'm, I'm at a place where I'm, I am, I, the more I learn, the more I am okay with knowing that I don't know everything. And sometimes there's not answers for everything. Um, and I have become more comfortable being in that, that place of wonderment and being in that place of, of just kind of awe and being okay with not having all the answers, you know, and and that's and whether that's with archaeology or biblical studies or my own faith journey, um, I'm 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 finally at I feel like I'm finally at a place where I'm like, okay, yeah, I have these questions, and I may not find the answers right now. Or maybe what I think is a good answer might change. I don't know, but I'm okay with that. Um, and so there's something about finding the tangible that is making the untangible really okay. That's a great place to uh, bring this to a conclusion. So, Cynthia, thank you so <laughs> much for taking the time to speak with us at OnScript. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.